The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. Father, as Paul is concluding his journey across the Mediterranean to Rome, and as we are concluding our journey through the book of Acts, as you met him, so meet us, we pray. As you comforted him with your presence, so comfort us that we might go from here reassured of your great and many promises, your providence therein. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Morning, Bloodbuff family. It's good to be with you. It so happens that Acts 27 is about sailing, and I love to sail. I might be a little bit of a, like I might have asked for this text, you know, like six months ago. Uh, When I say I love to sail, I don't mean that I'm necessarily good at it. I mean that other people around me on ships that I've been on know what they're doing, and I like to take the wheel. Uh, So the wind, the waves, the wheel. Some of the youth here may remember a few years ago a particular instance where um, I had the wheel, and um, some things took place, and God was merciful. So, like, like, praise God, uh, we were all okay, and uh, the captain of that ship took the wheel back for me uh, at that time. So I don't speak as an expert, but just as somebody who has a hobbyist, I enjoy this. Today, sailing is really largely a hobby. But in the first century, this would have been uh, the way to get around quickly, especially across the Mediterranean. Even if you were going by land around the Mediterranean, it still would have often been fast to get uh, across the sea. So you could liken it perhaps to more like the airline industry today, or perhaps, perhaps not the airline industry today, maybe the airline industry of the 1930s and 1940s. So nowadays you can have an intercontinental flight and go all the way across the ocean in one, one jump. Um, you occasionally hear about an airplane crash. Not so much in the first century. In the first century, uh, there was no inter-Mediterranean. So you, you went from place to place, smaller jumps because of the uncertainty of weather and other things like that. And regularly in the news, you would have heard of a ship crashing. Now, I give some of this background to simply remind you that the trip in this chapter is just not what we would experience today if we were to go sailing anywhere. This is not some lazy Mediterranean cruise for a group of tourists. This is God's appointed means for getting Paul to the throne room of Caesar. What stood between a prison in Caesarea and a throne room in Rome? This huge sea. The, the sea that Rome only had a word for it, just called it the sea. And it's our sea, they said. God's providential purposes are something that we've known about it from the very beginning of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. What lies in the way of the gospel getting to the end of the earth? This sea. And God has purposes in this. So the question is not whether, is this going to happen? But how will it happen? And that's the text before us today. 
So this is not meant to be sort of a sit back and, well, come sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a faithful trip that started from Caesarea aboard this ship. It's, it's not like we just sit back and for the next half hour we're going to hear a narrative. There's more happening than that. God has purposes and plans for his people to see and heed how his providence works out here in this text and in your lives as well. We are going to see, we're going to lean in. How does God's providence for Paul and for his purposes work out across the sea through a storm and in a shipwreck? And before we jump directly into the text, pray with me one more time. So God, we ask for grace to hear and heed your word and to see in this story your great purposes and to be reassured that your great purposes are for us, that your providence, your goodness, your greatness for the protection of your people is true. So help us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a map ready for us uh, to check out. So you'll notice here that uh, Caesarea over on the right side of the map bottom right side, and you'll just see Paul's trip here. The text today is going to take us from Caesarea all the way over to the island of Malta, and next week, Pastor Dave is going to preach the very last uh, sermon on the book of Acts, I think, although we might have a summary sermon as well after that, where he's going to go from Malta all the way up to Rome. So this is not a short journey. This is a big trip that Paul is about to embark on for the duration of this chapter. And I just highlight this to say, like, again, as per my comments at the beginning, this is more like several quick trips across the Mediterranean, or at least it's designed to be that way. It's not actually what happens. So you can go ahead and turn over to the outline. So if you have your Bible, I hope you've got it open with me to Acts chapter 27. Just remember where we are. Last week, Dave preached about this new trial for Paul that Agrippa had. We heard of Paul's persuasive words and his final appeal to go to Caesar. And in verses 1 and 4 of our text, Paul has appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he must go. It's the right of every Roman citizen to make a final appeal to the highest magistrate in the empire, and probably, honestly, to enter a long line of people that are waiting for a similar kind of appeal to take place. So look with me at verses 1 through 4. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramantium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put out uh, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. Putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Notice here we're introduced to this man named Julius, a member of the Syrian battalion of soldiers who would be called the Augustan cohort, probably a man who is actually not a citizen of Rome, but by his service to Rome, hopes to earn his citizenship by making essentially a pledge of allegiance to Caesar. And here he is interacting with a man who is also a Roman citizen, but has a greater allegiance. So Caesar was thought of as the God-man. Caesar, 
Augustus and then all of his successors, including Caesar in this day, Nero. Julius has made a pledge of allegiance to this man. And Paul has made his own allegiances to the true God-man. We're going to track what Julius does in relationship to Paul at several points throughout this text. Notice also that Paul has companions, Luke and Aristarchus. Why were they allowed to go along with him? This is not like a, a government plane or a government boat. I, I'm going back to the plane analogy here, okay? Uh, this is not like a government plane with like prisoners on board. This is more like a Delta Airlines flight with federal marshals on board with prisoners and probably a bunch of cargo in the hold. It's more about the cargo, but you'd also board and go along. And so uh, his companions, Luke and Aristarchus, were allowed to purchase their own way. And then we see there's even a layover, a plane change in Myra to what is probably a bigger ship to get farther across the sea. Then from there we see in verse 8, you turn with me to verse 8, that they coasted along the, the coast and came to a place called the Far Havens, which is near the city of Lacia. So having gone up around to a different part of Asia Minor, they cross the sea and get to Crete in the southern uh, part of Crete. And then they hope to make it from there just around the corner of Crete with some bad weather to a port called Phoenix, a harbor on the western coast. Now we have to remember just again, nautical travel in those days is not as it is today. There's no weather app that they can check. There's no uh, computer-aided navigation um, and other things like that. As unpredictable as sailing could be, one thing is definitely predictable. The fall into the winter for sailing, especially in the Mediterranean, is predictably dangerous. So you see the the note there in verse 9, the fast is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which takes place from mid, depending on the year with the Jewish calendar, from mid-September to mid-October. And if you know anything about sailing, not a great time to sail at all. So this was happening where they had hoped to cross the sea kind of quickly in late summer, and the going was slow and hard. So consider what they're trying to do here. They are, so I've, in a former life, seen some people around, former life, I would enjoy rock climbing. I hate flying. I don't know why I hate flying and like rock climbing. It's a strange, strange thing. I enjoyed rock climbing and rappelling and other things like that. So what they're attempting to do, in some ways, is almost like rappel along the coast. Just keep close to the coast, go down, let uh, the wind take them. But the wind in the Mediterranean is not so predictable as gravity is. And so, we're not just sitting back and observing the story. Let's lean in and see the providence of our God. Look with me at verses 10 and 11. The, pa- the fast was already over, and Paul advised the centurions, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. So just consider the providence of our God that this interaction takes place at the beginning of the journey before things get bad. If we were all on a plane bound uh, across the, uh, the Pacific Ocean and Bruce Power was piloting it and one of us randomly went forward and said, flight attendants, flight attendants, I think this is going to be a really bad trip. 
you should, you should let the captain know. We would probably all look at that person and be like, Bruce has this. Bruce is the expert. It's fine. But if the next morning we woke up in an episode of Lost, we would probably look at that person with a little bit more like, oh, maybe, maybe they knew what they were talking about. Maybe pay more attention to what they were saying. And I think that's what's taking place here. We are seeing the providence of our God that Paul is beginning to earn a reputation on this trip that's going to matter by the time we get to the end of the chapter. So what will happen when these soldiers, these sailors, and these saints in the midst of this storm? Well, let's keep reading. Then second, in verse, verses 13 through 26, Paul in the storm. I'll read with me the first few verses here. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. So attempting to leave the protection of this fair haven, the southern, co- southern port of Crete, and attempting to get to a place that's more suitable to stay at during the winter, they leave but are thrust out further into the sea than they intended due to what the text calls here a northeaster. Literally, the words mean like wind of hurricane force. Okay, so this is something that uh, probably is what today is nautically called a, a metacane. So instead of hurricane, there's these things that crop up in the fall in the Mediterranean called metacanes that on occasion, not all the ways, but on occasion get to like a category one hurricane force. It's probably what's happened here. The last big one happened last September, September of 2020, and I think did reach hurricane force. So here's the ship. It's a pretty big one we're going to see. It's caught in this storm. What are they going to do? Well, they need to get closer to the coast. They can't make it staying out sea, so they're trying to do things to help them either control the ship or make the ship easier to handle or make the ship uh, less likely to capsize. So first, you see in verses 16 and 17, they pull the lifeboat up out of the water. If you're familiar with sailing, you would have kept the lifeboat in the water typically. But when the wind and the waves are really bad, that becomes a liability. It can make the ship list. So they pull the boat up closer, and then they take ropes. And I was doing some research on this. They take ropes, and uh, they don't lash the lifeboat. They actually like wrap the ropes around the hull somehow, or even like will bolt it into the front and bolt it into the back to try to keep the hull closer together. So if there's any kind of creaking or maybe gaps in some of the construction of the ship, you're trying to hold it closer in such a way that it's a little more um, uh, leak-proof. Second, in verse 17, they lower some kind of device, and it says gear in the ESV. This is just a super common word. Sometimes it's translated vessel or other things like that in the ESV. We don't exactly know what it is. Probably it's one of two things. Either they lowered some kind of anchor that was designed to create drag and kind of slow the ship, or they possibly actually lowered the main sail to prevent the ship from being pushed along by the wind. Whatever it was, the point was to slow the speed at which they were being pushed out to sea. Third, in verse 18, this is where it starts to get kind of crazy. They start throwing the cargo overboard. Why throw cargo overboard? Probably 
because they're trying to get the ship to rise up out of the waterline a bit. And so that if any leaks had developed or were going to develop, that they wouldn't take on water as quickly. Whatever was going on, they were willing to give up financial gain or provision in order to gain maybe some measure of control over the ship. It was desperate. And then last, in verse 19, they start to throw the tackle overboard. Again, this is, this is the plural version of the word used in verse 17 for gear. Whatever it is exactly, it has something to do, I think, with the control of the ship. Okay, so they took it with their own hands, and then afterwards it says all hope of being saved had been lost. This is desperate. They're willing to take apart the control mechanisms of the ship in order to lighten the ship, apparently. And then, what does it say in verse 21? No sun, no stars for many days. They gave up all hope. They were done. But then see what takes place. And this is actually verse 21. Since they had been without food a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you, take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I've been told, but we must run aground on some island. Now, imagine that you're a passenger on this ship and you're listening to this, and there's no hope. All right, we're going to see this in a second. It's been 11 days probably without control of the ship and no, moon, you know, no stars, no you know, anything to navigate or figure out anything by. And then this guy says, we're all going to survive. You probably would look at him and say, but really, like, this is, this is not the kind of situation where anyone is going to survive, okay? Much less a few, much less everyone will survive. And yet Paul says that it will be this way. Notice we see the direct intervention of God here into the midst of his providential circumstances. Um, it, I looked back at this. I'm pretty sure we have not seen, like, a direct word from God since chapter 23, verse 11, First, when Jesus says, you're going to go to Rome, like to you, the Lord is with Paul in prison and says, you're going to go to Rome. So we have not really, for four chapters, heard about the direct intervention of God. And yet, God has been intervening. This is what his providence is. His providence to protect Paul throughout all these trials and this voyage. Notice two things here. I must get to Rome we must run this ship aground. Do you see the two musts? This must happen. God has said it. In order for it to happen, we've got to put this ship aground someplace. I think this is instructive for us. There are two musts. I think this is, this is true. Sometimes we can be quick to sit back and say, you know, God is sovereign. He's big. Well, God appoints means Look around. He's appointed means in here for your sanctification. Consider in your life the means that God has for you. You must safely make it all the way home. And someone else must help you get there. You must grow in faith in Christ. And there are others that must help you along. 
We had a baby dedication here a little bit ago. We are trusting that God will help our children grow up in the faith. Parents must raise them in the faith. There are two musts. The gospel must go to the nations. And we must persevere in our evangelism. Your small group must grow in maturity. And you must open your mouth to ask hard questions and pray for one another that God might answer. Your workplace must hear of Jesus. And you must open your mouth. Your school, Lakeville South, South Heights, private school, must hear about Jesus. You are not just at your schools, high schoolers, college students, just to get an education. Consider the providence of God in placing you there. So God has this ship out at sea without hope in the exact right place so that as the divine revelation has come, it will have the most effect, especially in light of what comes next. Let's be clear. This is important here. Do you, did you, I mean, do you hear what Paul said, verse 21, 22? He said, I told you we shouldn't have left, but they did. And so even beyond what Paul's wisdom seemed to say, God had plans. Even beyond what it seemed best in the immediate moment, way out into eternity, God had plans for this trip. Might it be so for us too? So let's see this final movement of the text. Verse 27 through 44, Paul in the shipwreck. Now just a quick word on time frame here. Uh, you'll notice that verse, these verses are essentially over one 24-hour period. Everything else before it has been likely at least a couple of months. And uh, you see in verse 19, they started to throw stuff overboard three days after leaving the protection of Crete. And then in verse 20, many days passed. And then here in verse 27, we see 14 days have passed since leaving Crete. So as I mentioned, 11 days without much control of the ship, at the mercy of the wind and the waves— as we're going to see, at the mercy of God Almighty. So starting in verse 27, we see the ship, which has been pushed along by the wind, now quickly coming into shallow water. So what do they do? They throw down four anchors out the back to apparently slow their approach. And we see the sailors start to abandon ship. And Paul tells the soldiers, don't let them get away or we're going to die. Does that seem counterintuitive? <laughs> Maybe. If you keep them here, we will all survive. But if you let them get away, that will not happen. But by this point, he has earned Julian's trust. Again, think back to, this is going to be bad. We should not leave. To an angel has appeared, and all of this will work out. You have to understand, again, how just mind-boggling this would be. There's an, an escape ship right here. It can't fit everybody. Cut it away. Let it fall into the sea and drift off if we want to survive. What? Really? But consider what happens. Check out verse 39. I'll read just to the end of the chapter. Now, when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach but striking a reef they ran the vessel to ground 
The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurions, Julian, wishing to save Paul, kept some, or kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make the land, make for the land, and the rest on planks and are on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Every single person, 276 of them, according to this text, made it safely to land. People that couldn't swim, people that could swim. The soldiers, the sailors, and the saints all made it. If you've listened to Paul do, like, talk about this all the way on this, you know, couple-week journey, you sit there and say, he's got to get to Rome. That's why all this has happened is so that he could get where he's supposed to go because his God has ordained it. I mean, just think about this. First, he says, it's going to be bad. Then second, don't let the sailors escape or we'll die. And third, we're all going to survive. He says, here, eat some food and get ready. And then it all happens. Let's consider each group here. Notice the sailors. They're experts at the sea and they're out of their depth. Pardon the pun. They're out of their depth here. They prayed to their gods, done what they could, and they're going to abandon ship, save themselves at the expense of others. And then they don't get away, and they survive. If you were a sailor, and all of your common wisdom about what should have happened is proven to be like, like it didn't work, what would you do? What kind of word would spread once you reach shore about this Paul and his God? Notice, too, the soldiers. Or they're at sea. Maybe they're Marines. I don't know. They're soldiers at sea. Particularly in the eyes of one centurion, Paul is special. Maybe not in all of the people that are under him. But Paul is special to him. They're under orders to bring him to Rome and face trial before Caesar. And they see all this happen, and they do as Paul says. And then he's going to escape, and the people under the, the head centurion say, we've got to kill him, we've got to kill all the prisoners. This is what we would do. And the centurion says, don't. And they all survive. What kind of word would spread once they reach shore? Once they reach the imperial court? Do you see that Paul is beginning, well, he's already had it, but it's increasing this reputation, and indeed the glory of God is on display? And notice the saint. Notice Paul. He says simply, they have to break bread and be prepared for the day ahead. And he assures them, in verse 34, not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. Earlier he had said, he had to stand before Caesar, and it all happens as he says, you, if you were on that ship, would probably look at him and say, your God is truly who you say he is. And the reputation and the glory of God would spread. The word of God came to Paul. He faithfully spoke it, and all across the sea, he's been shown again and again. He knows what's going to happen because God is with him. He's not speaking to his own prowess or power, but to the great providence of his God. So here we see, this is, if you've been reading your Bible, 
been reading Acts, you've been reading the Old Testament, this should not be surprising. He's in a line of faithful heralds, faithful prophets of God's word. Do you remember Joseph and Daniel? Who said, it's not me, O great Pharaoh, or O great Nebuchadnezzar, that can do anything, but our God is able to give you the interpretation of your dreams. Or do you remember Jonah? So many parallels in this story with Jonah, but kind of reversed a bit, like uh, pagan sailors praying. Uh, you don't think going overboard is going to save you, but it does. I mean, this, uh, Jonah's supposed to go to the capital city of the main Gentile nation. He doesn't want to, and yet he does. Do you remember Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, scorned by their people, still faithful for their lifetimes? Paul is in line with all of these prophets. God was with them. God was with Paul. So what does it mean for us? What does it mean for us? In conclusion, the text leaves us with some questions about what happened to Paul and what will happen with the rest of his journey and what has happened in our lives and what will happen. When you consider the New Testament epistles, Think of Philippians, the prison epistles especially. Why does Paul have the reputation that he has in the imperial court? It's not only because he's been faithful there. We're going to see the last couple verses of um, Acts. He gets to spend two years in Rome, you know, freely preaching. He has a reputation that precedes him because of God's great providence here, God preparing him for his arrival to Rome. Word of this man representing a risen and reigning king, a king who still commands winds and waves and ships and sailors and soldiers and saints, would have reached the ear of those in Rome. Who is the true king? Is it Caesar? Or is it this God-man that Paul heralds? You might not see this as an evangelistic kind of text, but I think it is. Paul is being granted hundreds of witnesses from every walk of life to the acts of the risen King Jesus in bringing Paul safe across the sea so he might be tried before Caesar. If you were on this ship, this event would rock your world and your perception of reality. There would be a full shift in what you thought was true to what Paul says is true. What Paul says is true. Do you see your life in the same way? I think we should from this text. In God's great providence, where are you, Christian? Where has he placed you? Where has he called you to be faithful? Knowing that he has purposes for you there. In your small group, your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, giving you children, giving you friends so that you might, in his timing and the circumstances of his choosing, speak God's word of hope to them. He who is our only hope of life and death. I think sometimes I, I'm probably true of you, I'm more quick to see the circumstances of life, what seems to be immediate, as determinative for how I should operate. This goes wrong with this. Well, we shift. This happens over here. Okay, I'm going to change. Without asking the question of, what might our God be doing in all of these things? 
Does God's word shape my, shape our perception of reality so much that we act faithfully? Now, in our day, let's be honest, uh, I think many who name the name of Christ are quick to point to circumstances and other things and say, it's crazy out there. And in some ways are subtly wounding their witness to those that don't know Jesus. But might not our circumstances of suffering be the platform on which God might be building in his great providence an opportunity for witness? The providence of God can protect Paul so his witness grows amid the suffering of life and the quenching of all earthly hope. Could it not also be so with us? So you might know you are unforsaken and you might be undeterred in your living out of the gospel before believers and unbelievers. What if your providence, the providence of God, has been hard in your life? You've suffered so much. You've lost those you love. You've had broken relationships. Your health has, has gone bad. God's providence stands over these things in such a way that light momentary affliction, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, works exceeding weights of glory. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Those that suffer more in this life, I think, get a head start on heaven when we get there. That heaven will be sweeter still for those that have suffered more. There are some of you in this room that I'm going to be looking at when we get there, and I'm going to be paying attention because you're going to be a few light years ahead of me in terms of your experience of the sweetness of God. There's an old hymn um, that speaks to this kind of thing, this providence of God. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds that you so much dread are filled with God's mercy, and they will break in blessing on your head. Behind every providence that looks dreadful, God has goodness planned. We may not see it all here, but we will. We will, I believe. And if you're here and you're unsure, you're unconvinced, maybe you're actively hostile to these claims of God's goodness and greatness, his providence, or against the claims of the life, death, resurrection, and right now reign of Jesus. First, I'm so glad you're here. So glad you're here. The claims of Christianity are true. Absolutely true. So many different sources testify to the life and death of Jesus without opening this up. And when you open this up, there are, there are loads of witnesses to the fact that Jesus did not stay dead, but he rose. And if he rose, everything changes. The Paul that God heralds, the, the Paul, the God that Paul, there's my dyslexia coming up, the God that Paul heralds is the true God. And we live to worship him. You are surrounded by those that follow him. His claims are true. He is Lord and Savior. You don't need to leave this place clinging to your sin. You can cling to him instead. Come talk to us. Talk to somebody nearby you. You can be saved from the wrath to come by faith in Jesus Christ. This brings us to the Lord's table, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. 
If you're here today trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of all God's promises to you, yes, even eternal life, this is a meal, a communion meal for you, for us together. We are sinners, it is true. We are beggars seeking bread. We sin every day, but if you, by faith, are seeking to repent of your sins, have placed your faith in Jesus, this is for you. If you're here today and you count Jesus as Savior and Lord, there's particularly bitterness in your heart towards other believers, or sin that you're unyielding, yeah, failing to yield to Jesus, and you're wanting to cling to Paul has words in 1 Corinthians that it's just, it's dangerous. It's not safe to take this meal. But let me encourage you. Seek to make that right. I remember a season of life in my young Christian life where there was a period of many months because of bitterness at another person in the church that I was a part of then that I would not take the meal with them. And really, honestly, I was just kind of stuck like, well, it's on them to come to me. If you feel the Lord burdening you about another relationship in this room, especially in this room or with other Christians elsewhere, or about sin in your heart, man, make that right. Come back to the table, please. And if you're an unbeliever and you're present here today, you just know that you don't, you don't trust in this Jesus. Again, we're so glad you're here. This isn't a meal for you. We just ask that you not partake. But please talk to one of us afterwards. We would love to hear um, hear your story, and speak to you the story of Jesus. So I'm going to give us just a minute here to reflect if you're in any of those three categories. All of us are in those three categories. Just consider, consider the body and blood of Jesus. Take one minute. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.